This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and this is our very first edition of PreserveCast Conversations, what we're calling The Professor and the Practitioner. Uh, And we're thrilled to be joined by a previous guest of PreserveCast, Dr. Whitney Martinko of Villanova University. Um, And for those listeners who previously joined us, you know that she recently authored a book Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, And as a part of sort of getting out there and telling people about that book, we had our own preserve cast and we thought it would be fun on a monthly basis to have uh, sort of a free ranging conversation about what's going on in the world of preservation um, and talk about it from the perspective of somebody who works on the nonprofit side and sort of trying to do the work of preservation and somebody who has the, the opportunity on the academic side to kind of think through what this means in the context of history and preservation and all those sorts of things. So this is going to be a weekly feature, or excuse me, a monthly feature of PreserveCast. PreserveCast is weekly, but once a month, we're going to have one of these PreserveCast conversations and kind of get into what's going on in the world of preservation. We may bring in guests from time to time, um, but coming to us live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is uh, Dr. Martingo. Now, do we need to call you Dr.? No, you can call me. You can call me Whitney. Thank you so much for the invitation, Nick. I'm so excited to be here and to um, be bridging uh, the the academic practitioner divide, although, of course, it's not such a sharp divide, um, I would like to think. And also the preservation and history divide, because of course, I'm a, I'm a historian. I'm trained as somebody who has degrees in history, but as you mentioned, wrote my first book about the history of preservation and do a lot of teaching and research about the history of cities and the built environment. So it's really great to be back in the preservation world and have the chance to have a conversation with you and your listeners. Yeah. And I think it's so important to put, to kind of put what we're doing in context. I think you know, particularly if you're kind of working in the field, you feel like everything you do is new. And I think something that a sense of history gives you is the recognition that there's really nothing new. It's just it's just sort of like the same struggles over and over again. And you've written, you know, this really great history of different aspects of, of preservation. And so I think kind of putting that in context is cool. And I think you're right. There is not as stark a divide as perhaps there once was. And uh, between academia and practitioners and that kind of thing. But I also think that opportunities like this kind of further break those things down, right? Like it's an opportunity for us to kind of talk casually about what's going on and the context of it for people who aren't, who aren't familiar or didn't get a chance to listen to your episode. Um, and they can go back and do that. Um, but like your, your quick details, where, what's your background? Where'd you grow up? Why, why do you care about this stuff? When did you get the passion? Sure. Thanks uh, for that question. I always love pointing out the fact that I'm from Chillicothe, Ohio the heart of Appalachian, Ohio, so about an hour south of Columbus. And I went to college at Harvard and ended up at I've never the- heard of it. Where's that? <laughs> Cambridge, Massachusetts, a long way oh, from, okay. a long way from Chillicothe nice. in a lot of ways. Um, and I, after college, I worked in a small community museum for one year and then headed to the University of Virginia to study in the history department. But one of the main reasons why I 
went to UVA was because they had such a strong architecture school and a set of really amazing historians working at the architecture school. So even though my PhD is in history, I was really lucky to be able to take a number of classes at the architecture school at UVA to, and to work in a, to, to do a summer architectural history field school in Falmouth, Jamaica with Lewis Nelson. So I would never call myself as, as uh, primarily an architectural historian, but I would like to think that I am at least in conversation with architectural historians as well as historians. And I've been here in Philadelphia since 2013. That's super cool. And you're a, I think you told me last time we were talking before we, we did our recording that you are a tenured professor at Philadelphia. I am. I'm super thankful. I was tenured, I guess, a year or two ago. 2019, I think. We've lost all sense of time. Yeah, I'm pandemic, not really right? sure when that was. Yeah, I think that, that was 12 years ago. Um, yeah, it sure feels like it. But yeah, I teach at yes. Villanova University uh, out on the main line. I live in West Philadelphia and uh, really love my adopted hometown. Well, I think, you know, at some point we should plan a uh, preserve cast in the field back in Falmouth, Jamaica. I think we should go there. I think we need to be there to have that conversation about what you did there. Right? It I would be great. And visit. <laughs> I would love to have, there's so many great partners, including Falmouth Heritage Renewal. Um, a lot of folks at UVA, I think, have continued on in different field schools that go there. And I would love to go back to Falmouth. It's actually been about a decade now. And I know the city has changed uh, a remarkable amount since a cruise ship has been docking there now for about a decade. So it would be interesting well, to see could, how it's changed. Yeah, as you say, we could talk about cruise ships as, a, as an issue um, because as, as you're probably familiar, I'm sure some listeners are, you know, uh, Charleston, South Carolina um, was in a long-term battle with the cruise ship industry and, you know, they have height limits and all of these architectural pro protections. And then, you know, every week, a giant, humongous building kind of sits on the, the edge of the waterfront there. So um, even these movable assets can have impact on historic communities, which is probably like a good way for us maybe to segue into some of these topics. So the way we're thinking about doing this, and this is going to evolve, but as, as we get, get into these, um, is like things that we're seeing happening in the news sort of broad topics, not just specific issues, but like trying to put them into context. Like one example that we kind of shared with each other before we recorded this episode is murals in historic districts. I don't know if there's anything that causes more, I might argue unnecessary consternation, but more consternation than murals. And I guess maybe art writ large in historic districts. And it, and it pits people that should be friendly to each other, against each other. Um, and I think sometimes, if you'll pardon the pun, paints preservation in a in a bad light. Mm -hmm. um, d d does this go back? Like, do you, are, have you seen these things over and over again? Is this something that you've noticed? Is it uh, any experience with it? Of course, we I can talk about some examples that we're familiar with and things that are going on, but it seems like, you know, if you if if you look at what's going on in the news right now, always there is a mural in historic district issue. Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess I didn't say in my introduction that my book really focuses on the 19th century. So bringing that long perspective to these issues of preservation, you're right that a lot of times it does seem like we've been having the same debates, fighting the same battles for at this point centuries. 
But of course, as a historian, I would be remiss not to remind us that the past never exactly repeats itself. So hopefully that's encouraging to know that we're never actually repeating the past and hopefully making some sort of a, if not progress, we're at least engaging in these longstanding debates in different ways. I mean, with regards to murals, I'm really interested to hear sort of your perspective on it, because of course, here in Philadelphia, with the mural arts program, many murals are actually considered, at least among local neighbors, to be historic, right? And that the preservation debates or conflicts that happen are often about wanting to preserve murals as historic in and of themselves. And so there, you know, preservationists are often, you know, sort of fighting to keep murals in place um, or, or fighting to keep art in place as a part of a historic structure. But I know that a lot of times the debate is about painting a new mural, right? And either adding or detracting from the character of a local a neighborhood or a corner. Well, right. And in and, and a lot of it, like I'm sure a lot of what we'll discuss, and I'm sure hopefully there'll be some people nodding their heads in agreement here, is that it gets back to the inflexibility of the National Register for Historic Places and these guidelines that we've been living with for the better part of 55 years now um, that are well-meaning but just sometimes bind us in ways that are unnecessary and counterproductive, right? So you're right. I mean, there's historic murals. But what we're familiar with, at least I'm personally familiar with, are, are issues particularly like in places like Annapolis. There's a huge fight over murals in Annapolis over the past five years. Um, because Annapolis doesn't really oversee paint color. So is paint a substantial change to a historic building if it changes the look of the building? And at what line do you cross over between um, changing a building, is it reversible? Does it damage the building? Because if you're painting brick that's never been painted before, um, and it just gets into this world of you're, you're in such level of detail. And then, and then what also happens too that I, I find is that these issues, unfortunately, then cause people to think that historic districts are just bad and that it's just like, sort of this nanny state and everybody's picking on you. And then they start thinking that colors are, uh, you know, regulated, which in most historic districts, they're not. Right. That's um, the bad name, right? That preservationists right. often want to avoid the paint police, right? So it doesn't help right. when there are fights literally over paint in historic districts. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, I think it gets back to, again, it's, it's, it's to these guidelines and, and is preservation, um, preventing revolution, but allowing evolution? Or is it a, a stasis in one particular period? Um, and I think art, if done well, can blend into the historic environment um, and adds to it. And it's a layer without really completely changing it. That's my personal opinion. I think that we should probably make places for it. Um, but boy, it comes up time and time again, and there's the 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 historic preservation community has never really, like in many situations, unfortunately, has never really come to terms with what it wants to do with art um, in historic places. Um, and I don't know if is that a legacy of just sort of you know kind of going back to where preservation begins, not only with the National Register, but just sort of capturing things in time. And so anything that kind of um, sullies that is that 
Is that where that comes from? I mean, is that what your kind of sense is? Yeah, I think that this gets to the heart of something that as a historian, I really dial in a lot in debates over, you know, whether to preserve a building or how to preserve a building. In this case, whether or not a mural, you know, quote unquote, blends in. And that is what is historic, right? I think people often throw the word historic around and think it means something objective or set in stone. But really, people have very different ideas about what does it mean for a building to be historic or protected as historic. And I think that some people, whether they're for or against preservation, really do have a sense that for a building to be historic and protected, it should look as it looked in the past, right? A lot of people would say, oh, it looks as it looked originally. Now, of course, most preservationists, historians, people who live in communities know nothing is preserved unchanged exactly as it was the day that it was built. And most people don't want it to be preserved in that way unless, you know, maybe if we're talking about George Washington's home, right, or Independence Hall or, uh, you know, one of these national iconic historic sites that is more of a museum. But if we're talking about buildings in a, a landscape in a town or a rural area, I think most people want historic buildings to show those different layers that you're talking about not to be frozen in place. Um, And for a building to be historic, I say this as a historian, a historic building is one that changes over time, right? That registers different eras and different inhabitants, different users, um, different visions. And so I'm certainly on board with you that, you know, a mural can bring out a historic aspect of a building without looking as it looked in the past, right? Murals can help engage people in in a history or in a past in ways that architecture may not right that it, in fact a mural if it's if it's revolutionary if it looks very different um, from from the paint colors of the 19th century can actually help people really engage in the history of a place or the history of a building in new ways and so you know I would I would hope that preservationists and public artists and community residents could have those conversations about, you know, what are they really looking for when they say they want to preserve the historic aspects of a building? That can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. And I feel like the longer I work in this field, the more I appreciate the layers of history, you know, and I think that that's something that, you know, I think to, to some extent, some of these conversations are going to be around what does the preservation community get right? What do we get wrong? How do we fix it? But, you know, I think one of the, one of the challenges and one of the things the preservation community hasn't gotten right is explaining that to the general public, that layers of history, not, they don't, they don't take away from a building. They add to the complexity of it, right? You know, like preservation Maryland is working on a rehab of a historic cabin and has a long history. It goes from pre-revolution in the 1730s all the way up, to the present when it was slated for demolition because it was hit by a police cruiser. Um, And so every piece of that to me is an interesting part of its story. It's not like I want to erase everything and just go back to, well, this was this cabin in the middle of the woods in the 1730s. And I think that that we've always had done a bad job, I think of explaining the difference between rehab and restoration and, and stabilization. And I think it's because the words are complex and there's too much um, at play. And 
you know, we could go on and on with this and we're heading off in different directions, which is fun. But I think it's also a legacy of, you know, in the UK, they have different graded buildings and you do different things with them. And for mm-hmm. us, it's either it's it's thumbs up, thumbs down. It's on the register or it's not, you know, it is or it isn't. And I think that, you know, different levels of buildings would kind of give you that sense of like, yeah, a grade one, you know, you know, what, whatever, whomever's home that was, you know, Susan B. Anthony's home, then that has to be protected at a different level than a grade four where you're just going to adaptively reuse it. And that's okay. And I think that that, it's again, it's wrapped up in these. And and I, I wonder if this isn't a moment in time when we have the opportunity, when everyone's sort of looking at the tools that we use, you know, hopefully we have an opportunity to look at how, how we classify things. Um, and if we could finally make some change there, I know it's, 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 you know, glacially slow. Um, but you know, obviously people have been talking about that for a while too. Right. I fully agree on that idea of different grades of buildings. And to me, the most compelling argument for that really is this issue of sustainability. That preservation, I think, absolutely has to be in conversation with. And preservation can be a tool of achieving environmental sustainability, reducing waste, uh, combating climate change much more easily, I think, if there are different grades of of preservation status, right, that maybe encourage adaptive reuse versus feeling like it's all or nothing like you're talking about. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good segue um, to talking about infrastructure mm-hmm. because a big part of the potential infrastructure package that supposedly will move at some point this summer, whether or not it's a compromise bill or not, we don't know right now. Um, but when that when that legislation eventually moves, two, $3 trillion dollars, is preservation, is conservation, is rehab going to be part of that conversation? Are we being heard when it comes to infrastructure? And, and for so long, infrastructure, well, at least, you know, the, the big major infrastructure moments of the 20th century were detrimental to the historic environment. I mean, they, in, in some ways, they almost catapult the preservation movement of the 1950s and 60s between, you know, the different housing acts and the interstate highway system. And we just... We um, we destroyed not only historic places, just community in general. Um, what do you think about all that? That's a, that's a big piece there, a lot to chew. But you know, is 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 this a moment for the preservation community to be heard? I mean, I could talk about whether or not I feel like we are being heard, but right. um, where does it fit within all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest issue that the preservation community has to think about with the infrastructure bill is the history of racism that was clear in the building of the interstate highway system, for instance, in the, uh, you know, sort of the era of so-called urban renewal. And so, you know, the 1950s and 60s, you're right, that preservation, you know, the so-called national preservation movement developed in response to the demolition of buildings and communities. But I hope that when we look back, we see how communities of color in cities were hit so hard by this, right? It wasn't just a loss of of historic buildings. It was really, truly a loss of wealth and of communities uh, for communities, uh, or loss of communities for people of color. And so I hope that preservation can really take that history and adopt it uh, and reckon with it, right? And try to move forward 
in this moment by seeking measures of preservation that include communities of color, that center them, that build partnerships with people who have suffered from infrastructure (laughs) bills of the mid-20th century. Yeah, this is a moment to get it right when it comes to infrastructure. And I just want to make sure, I mean, I do know that the the federal historic tax credit is, uh, we believe, will be a component of the infrastructure bill, increasing it from 20% to 30%. Um, but when you talk about equity of programs and impacting distressed communities and communities of color, the issue with the federal historic tax credit is it's for income producing properties. So the, it's already sort of limiting there. And really, in reality, you can't use it for projects that are probably less than a million dollars because it's just far too difficult to do. And what I would love to see that I think would make that program more equitable is, and this is super wonky, but is to turn it into a certificate so that it's easy to move the money around so that it's not, because otherwise, basically what you have to do is this crazy thing called syndication where you have to go and get you know, a major bank that has federal tax liability and they buy the credit from you and they pay you a certain percentage. And if you're doing a Main Street deal in a distressed community, that's never going to happen. Right. You know, we can talk about how great tax credits are and they are and they've changed communities. But if you want it to be an equitable program, I think that that's something that when it comes to equity, the preservation community can rally around and can actually perhaps make a compelling argument about. So it's not just about throwing out our programs, it's making them work a little bit better. And that raises all boats, right? It works for communities of color, it works for you know distressed communities, it works for rural communities, you name it, places that don't have the multi $5 million project and they can bring Bank of America in to syndicate their tax credit. Most people don't even know what syndicating a tax credit is. I exactly. This, I is the, this, right? <laughs> this is the kind of thing where we can say that expertise in different fields is so necessary because we can aim for certain ideals, but unless you have this knowledge, I mean, even that is an issue of equity, right? How does one even have the time or expertise to understand these issues of tax credits, right? I think that that's something that is a problem that needs to be solved somehow too. Yeah, and I think sometimes preservation groups in particular, we think about equity in very specific, concrete ways. Like we want to change the equity of our staff and the way we do projects and the way we do this and that. But what about the equity of our policy and the policy that we advocate for? Um, So it really does take a... And I mean equity in every sense of the word, whether you're talking about native populations or where you're talking about distressed rural communities in places like Chillicothe, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, and we see that in Maryland too, which I always think is so interesting is that people always feel like their problems are unique to them and that no one else shares in those problems. So the problems of inner city Baltimore, they feel as if are so different than the problems of far Western Cumberland. Right. Um, but what we see from the statewide perspective is, it's it's almost like they're the same problems. They're just, it's just a different just a different background, different architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they suffer from disinvestment. They suffer from equitable outcomes. They suffer from you know um, capital and and you know access to capital and generational wealth. And it's the same story over and over again. Um, and uh, you know that's something that I think sometimes statewide and larger preservation groups can kind of bring out is like, look, we're all in this thing together. So if we can fix these programs, it doesn't just help the inner city, it helps rural communities too. Um, and, you know, I know rural issues are a big issue when it comes to the preservation community. And speaking of infrastructure, 
you know, I think a lot of people are beginning to embrace this idea that broadband is a preservation issue. Yes. I agree. Um, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, just, you know, cause you mentioned Chillicothe. Does everyone, is it Chillicothe or Chillicothe? Chillicothe, at least in Chillicothe. Ohio. There are five okay. Chillicothe's in the United States. And okay. most of them at least are Chillicothe. Wanted to make sure I got that right. Mm-hmm. So, um, broadband, does everybody have broadband there back home? I mean, probably not everybody. A lot of it is much slower than what I experience here in Philadelphia. But yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, A, there are a lot of places in rural areas or semi-rural areas that don't have access to broadband. But I mean, let's not forget about places like Philadelphia, where before the pandemic, I think it was 40% of homes didn't have internet, something, you know, mind-boggling for a major city. So, you know, it's not only a rural problem, although certainly it is. And I mean, that's the interesting thing and potentially hopeful thing about an infrastructure bill is that these, this is a lot of federal money that hopefully can make big changes in people's lives across space uh, and across different types of communities. And so I think broadband could be one of those issues that does bring, I don't want to say bring people together, but where people recognize that um, some some form of infrastructural improvements or changes can really have uh, an impact on a variety of populations. Yeah, and maybe a, to tie up this conversation with a little bow, I think it is kind of interesting. You talk about this big moment in federal spending and things like that and how it Im- obviously impacts preservation and communities and all the issues that matter to us and to others. Um, is that we have a president at this moment who sort of obviously and seemingly has sort of a sense for history. And I don't know if you heard that he had like a a round table with 10 or 12 historians Mm, where he just wanted to talk about the New Deal and what FDR got right and what he missed and what, you know, that moment. And um, I think it's no surprise that he has an FDR uh, painting in his office. Um, You know, I think that they they do see that as that moment. And, you know, these massive federal investments can be great. There also can be huge unintended consequences. So uh, you got to be really nimble to get this right. Um, but you're right. It, it is a big moment, um, you know, and, and could change the the future of historic communities. If, if far-flung places get broadband and you can work from anywhere, then that means far-flung places could become rehabbed in a way that previously capital would never flow to them. So it it has the opportunity in a really sort of seemingly disconnected way to change the nature of preservation. And that's where I I hope the preservation community recognizes how pivotal this moment is. Yeah, that's a great point. And thinking about historical perspective on the, the infrastructure bill, you know, the Urban History Association, they have a blog called The Metropole, and they just did uh, several installments of a series about reckoning with racism and the interstate highway system. And so any listeners out there who might be interested in that history and what we might be able to learn from it moving forward, the the Metropole has a great series from a number of historians. So I, I think you're right that there's the sort of the 1930s as a moment. I think we're also looking at the 50s and 60s and you know, trying to learn from the past and see where the intended and unintended consequences led us and and maybe try to not just avoid those, but maybe even attempt to try to repair or reckon with those um, devastating consequences for many people. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. You said at one point that history doesn't repeat, but what, what's the? I forget who said it, but history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Yes, um, your rhymes uh, or echoes, or you know, definitely yeah. through lines. We see a lot of through lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we take a quick break here? We'll come back and we'll wrap up this conversation, and we'll do that right here on Preserve Guest. We want to thank Oliver Pluff and Company for sponsoring today's episode of Preserve Cast. Oliver Pluff and Company tells the story of historic American beverages, including teas, spice drinks, cacao, and coffee, for historic sites, national parks, gourmet markets, and consumers looking for a great beverage hand-packaged in signature artisan tins. To enjoy a cup of history and learn more about what Oliver Pluff and Company offers, please visit oliverpluff.com. That's Oliver Pluff spelled P-L-U-F-F dot com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. And we're, this is our first episode of PreserveCast Conversations, the professor and the practitioner. Uh, so we've been talking uh, with uh, Whitney Martinko, a professor at Villanova University, before we took our break. Um, and we're going to be doing this once a month, having these uh, little conversations about what's going on in the world of preservation and the context of it and where we're headed and just an opportunity to think through where we are in our world right now. Um, and before we took our break, we talked about uh, as diverse topics as um, federal highways and uh, art murals. Um, and we are, um, you know, drawing towards the conclusion of this episode. But um, here's one that, so I have my own opinions on it, but I'm curious as a professor who obviously cares about preservation, but doesn't live in the, the nonprofit world of, of, you know, kind of doing some of this stuff. Um, endangered lists. Do they get your attention? Do you care? Right? Like, so you're somebody who cares about it. You clearly understand it. You know the context of it. Does that, like, catch your attention or is has that ship sailed? I... So personally, I'm I'm yes. speaking not from any sort of academic uh, mind sure. here. Personally, I still do pay attention to endangered lists. And I think I do because I've seen endangered lists for historic preservation take interesting angles, right? Identify different sites. I remember a couple of years ago when I think it was the National Trust identified the James River as an endangered structure or an endangered environmental feature, right? And to me, that caught my attention, right? Like, oh, this organization is thinking environmentally, right? They're thinking comprehensively. They're thinking about cultural landscapes and view sheds, um, resources that are beyond sort of a traditional building or structure. So I still pay attention. I don't know that I think that they inspire action to save those specific buildings. But I do think that they can inspire new ways of thinking about places. At least that's how I've experienced them or sort of why I pay attention. But I do know from folks who work in the sector that the one of the risks of these is making people mad, right? Nobody wants to have a property that they own or are trying to save appear on a most endangered list from what I understand, right? It can have unintended yeah. consequences of 
pissing off some people. So yeah, there's that, and then there's also like like we kind of got this sense that, and we've gone through different iterations of it, Preservation Maryland at least, where we've had one, and then we turned it into a program called Six to Fix, where we identified projects and we would work on them on an annual basis and trying to try and advance them in some way, which is a heck of a lot of work. Um, but the reason we went that route is we sort of felt like it was like this like sad puppy dog list. Like once a year we would put up a list of sad things and then we wouldn't really do anything about them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like having action, you know, it's just, it's how do you get above the, above the noise? How do you get above the fray? How do you get people to pay attention to things that matter? Um, yeah, so I was just that that was a that was a hot take. I was just a what, what do you think about endangered lists? Um, love to get your perspective on that. So, um, what are you reading? The latest preservation or history or anything for that matter, book? Well, the latest history and preservation I'm reading right now are student papers, which are really great. I'm reading a lot of really interesting student work uh, in my material culture class. But my book that I have recently started uh, and that I'm once I finish the semester, going to devour the rest of it a little bit faster, is Elizabeth Cohen's Saving America's Cities. And this book um, is one that looks, it's really a biography of Ed Logue. He was an urban renewal planner in the era that we were talking about, right? The 1950s and 60s and 70s. And Liz Cohen was a professor of mine in college. And I think she's the first person who ever used the term built environment for me, Uh, right? So she's the one who sort of first made me aware of this term. And I was a research assistant with this book very, very early on in this project. So I'm reading that obviously because I'm interested in the topic, but, you know, Cohen's argument is that, you know, urban renewal clearly devastating to many cities across the U.S., lots of failures, But her argument is that there were a few success stories, particularly Ed Logue's story can show us that progressive politicians, right, ideas that were progressive at the time, and that might still resonate with some progressive folks, particularly around issues of public housing, that there were some small successes in the past, right? It's not all just a wash and devastation. And so I'm, I think that it's going to be a really Im- important and hopefully inspiring story, which the past is not always, right? Um, to think about even amid these big infrastructure plans when so many things went wrong, that there can be success and there can be local cooperation of local community residents and sort of big scale academic planners who are working with these like massive federal dollars and uh, huge building projects. Sounds like a good future episode of PreserveCast. Yeah. Oh, you should get. Sounds like we need to get Dr. Cohen on. Dr. Cohen would be great. I, I will, I will happily connect you to, that would be a fantastic episode. Yeah, that sounds cool. So I just, well, the the current book I'm reading right now is a biography of Harry Houdini. But uh, that is not a, I mean, it's a history. That sounds, yeah, I was going to say, that's a a history connection. I bet there's some building story there, right? (laughs) It's a history connection. It certainly is. And he was, he is a a fascinating showman. Uh, So 
Um, he he had the ability to sell anything. Um, but uh, the most recent, before that, the book I wrapped was a more traditional preservation history and sort of in the line of preservation trades, which is very fascinating to me. Um, a book by um, Dr. Alex Langlands, who is a... Um, uh, we have a preserve cast episode with him coming up actually, but um, he is a, an archeologist from the United Kingdom and a BBC presenter and um, has kind of made a name for himself, but he wrote um, a book called craft, um, but spelled the traditional way C R A E F T craft. Um, and it's, it's all about sort of using your hands and why it matters and the philosophy and thinking behind it. Um, and you and I were talking about this book previously, and I thought it was interesting that you immediately drew the connection to the arts and crafts movement because he makes this argument that, at least in Britain in the 70s and 80s, the worry was, oh my God, we're going to lose these skills. And now the transition has been not so much that they're worried that they're going to lose all the skills, but that craft and trades and this tradition is important because we're becoming so disconnected from the tactile world that we don't do anything with our hands anymore. And you like immediately as the professor picked up on that and you're like, that's just like, <laughs> the arts and crafts. Crafts yeah, yeah. And, and we're, and you know, what's old is new again. It's not exactly the same, but you know, it's rhyming. Mm -hmm. And um, there's sort of this sense that he has, and, and it really resonated with me where it's like, you know, sometimes I just sit here behind my computer and I'm doing preservation. I'm doing the work of preservation, but I'm sitting behind a computer doing it, you know, right. um, you know, to the point that it's a funny thing happened this week is I couldn't get a, an Adobe PDF signed and I sent it back to the person. I was like, I, I don't know. It's like locked down. I can't sign it. And he was like, is your pen broken? <laughs> you know, because it was like, well, print you could it print it and sign, sign it. it. And I was like, I was like, oh, <laughs> printed. Oh God, what is this? 1997? You know? Right. So, but yeah, I mean, it's it, even in moments like that, you become so disconnected. And I think it's so important to have, you know, some type of tactile connection. Um, and, um, th there's another book written by actually one of his best friends, Peter Ginn, um, who, uh, is, is a friend of Preservation Maryland's as well. He's also an archeologist from the UK. Um, and he wrote a book called Slow Tech. And I kind of said that they, and that was the book I read before it. So I guess this is my collection here. Um, but um, they kind of go hand in hand because craft is this sort of the philosophy and the thinking behind it and why it matters. And then Slow Tech is this great collection, this hands-on book of things you can do with your hands if you don't know anything. Oh, that's neat. And so um, uh, my my first endeavor out of that with absolutely no skill was in making a cob uh, bread oven for the backyard. Wow! Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna try and fire that guy up this weekend. Um, but yeah, so you know, I think it's important whether or not you know. I think a lot of times we think of, and that's what slow tech was great as well. Is that a lot of times we think of trades and we're like, well, that's you know, that's for like skilled tradespeople, right? Like mm -hmm. that's for somebody that's for a stonemason who can you know dress uh, a piece of granite and. I can't. I don't know if you can. I don't know that. Nope, about you, I can't do you that. Can <laughs> if you can dress granite, I can't. But, you know, I can play around with clay and mud. And I think that there's something very human about that. And I think it's important for us to take that moment to remember that. And as preservationists, to use our hands from time to time. So many of us work either in the world of academia doing research or the world of nonprofits 
moving money around and writing grants and, you know, doing HR and all that kind of stuff. And it's easy. And that's just in the preservation world, but it's easy for anyone to lose sight of and lose connection with, you know, what I describe as the tactile world, the physical world that you can touch. And I think that that was something I took from this and felt very inspired by reading these two books together, sort of the philosophy and then the, uh, the how to. Yeah. And I think there's, the argument or the point that you're talking about is sort of thinking about the tactile world and saying you don't have to be a stonemason to be able to you know go out and work with certain tools or materials but i think the other another point you could take out of that would be to say that you don't have to be an expert to engage in something even if it's not tactile, right? So we could say, right. you know, you don't have to be a historian to do research on your home, right? You can go to the courthouse and look up the deed, or you could look at, at the census record and see who lived there. And part of that is to recognize that being a historian or being a Mason, that takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of practice and you know, a lot of refining of skills. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that you have to be an expert to partake in something, right? It's like, it's sometimes I feel like we almost need permission to have hobbies these days, right? Or, or to just do something for the fun of it or because it's interesting. But we can say, sure, like go out and uh, dip your hands into the preservation world in whatever way you you can at this moment, right? Whether that's the paper or the um, the, the the masonry tools. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a perfect way to, to end this conversation because it's go out, get your hands dirty. We're recording this on a Friday, you know, go out, enjoy, enjoy the weekend and do something with your hands and engage with the past that way. That sounds great. Yeah. I hope that I will get out there. I might go to my garden this afternoon. That's There's probably something historic in there, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. It's West <laughs> Philadelphia. You're, you're bound to find something. Well, this has right. been a lot of fun and we're looking forward to bring this conversation back again next month. And we'll yeah. talk to you then. Thank you so much. Good to see you. And I'll talk to you all, I guess, in a month. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.